0: Hi, this is uh, Guillermo del Toro again uh, to take you through another episode of Night Gallery. I have a very vivid memories of um, most every episode of Night Gallery, where I was when I watched it, uh, and what happened to me in the case of uh, the famous episode of The Doll, the, uh, which is my favorite of uh, the whole series. Uh, I unfortunately remember peeing in my pants as a kid, literally not not a figure of speech. But I also have incredibly vivid memories of when I watched this particular episode. I was uh, staying at my grandmother's house, and uh, I used to watch Night Gallery after everybody went to bed, and I was the last one to go up. And uh, I, this episode has a special importance for me. When I was asked to select three episodes of the second season, It was uh, a very hard choice to go through because I have many, many favorites. But uh, without a doubt, this is one of those episodes that was incredibly influential on me. I was, at the time, uh, as I said, spending inordinate amounts uh, of seasons with my grandmother while my parents traveled. And uh, my bond as a kid with an old old person, my grandmother was quite old and fragile, spoke, uh, connected incredibly with this episode. The Messiah on Moth Street uh, is for many one of the most sentimental, uh, perhaps even uh, corny for some episodes of uh, Night Gallery, but uh, not for me. For me it uh, remains a very touching uh, Christmas story in a tradition that actually could be traced all the way to the Victorian ghost story usually being told at Christmas. The most well-known example of this uh, tradition would be Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. But uh, this inscribes itself in that. It it is permissible for those stories to be at the same time very uh, sentimental and uh, very scary, which uh, I think this episode is both. Uh, it was directed by Don Taylor, who also uh, was the director of the, one of the acknowledged masterpieces of the Night Gallery series, which is tearing, their are their tearing Tim Riley's bar. Uh, uh, but uh, I think Don Taylor uh, seems to have the same affinity that Serling has for uh, the forgotten, the old people, you know. Uh, Serling has an empathy with the... Uh, the people at the bottom of the barrel, and especially people on the edges, um, people that, that uh, the world has passed by uh, or, or, ha- or has not noticed yet. So uh, it is from Serling, I would say, that I, I learned as a storyteller to, to talk about what I knew, my surroundings, and uh, my surroundings being what I knew as a child Uh, an invisible uh, creature to the entire world, or uh, living with an old person who was in turn also forgotten and invisible by the entire world. Let me read you what he has to say. You know, this Dickensian fantasy, uh, along with Silent Snow, uh, Secret Snow, and Brenda, are three very poignant uh, tales about childhood. And this this is where I think Night Gallery is different from Twilight Zone in many aspects. Twilight Zone is, uh, without a doubt, no discussion about it, the most accomplished uh, of the two series from a, pro- a producerial point of view and from an artistic uh, control uh, uh, point of view. Because they, you know, the Night Gallery had the, the nefarious, or at least famously nefarious, intervention of Jack Laird and. Uh, Many uh, impositions were put upon Rod Serling to uh, make the episodes, I think, with a lot less artistic control. But uh, the Night Gallery also has, uh, in my heart, an edge, because it, it occupies itself with uh, very poetic musings, or very uh, touching musings about uh, darker subjects. Uh, in a non-social way than, than Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone was great about doing big, uh, sprawling uh, metaphors, fables about uh, the social condition of being a human. But uh, Night Gallery uh, told stories that were more intimate. <clears throat> they were much more uh, chamber pieces, perhaps uh, uh, adapting itself to a smaller production format, but also garnering uh, a very curious um, emotional depth. The actors were sometimes great, sometimes not, and the directors uh, in Night Gallery, I think, abused uh, the use of the zoom lens uh, incredibly, but some of them were quite capable, and that is the case of <clears throat> Don Taylor. Don Taylor uh, has a very simple, very uh, academic uh, San. He uh, works his camera very carefully. He's not uh, an outstanding or experimental director in that sense, but he is uh, very well trained, incredibly, uh, incredibly economical with the with his setups, and very good with actors. Uh, I, I think that uh, there are some aspects in this um, episode that are. Uh, to me, very important. One of them is the presence of, obviously, Edward Edward G. Robinson, who was a a great Yiddish actor, you know, from Romanian uh, descent. He was born in Romanian Bucharest, I think, and uh, uh, everybody uh, remembers him from uh, either his golden period, uh, his gangster movies, Little Caesar and so forth, or, uh, in my generation's case, we recall him as uh, you know one of the most touching characters in Soylent Green with Charlton Heston and his fabulous death scene. Uh, Robinson, who was cast very often in uh, very rough, tough guy parts, uh, he was it was great at playing vulnerable. Uh, he was great at playing vulnerable in the, in in some of the noir films. Uh, uh, certainly memorable with uh, uh, lang or uh, empathic uh, in double indemnity, uh, but he was capable of giving great humanity to all his characters and and dignity. He was a a very particular man, he was a very erudite and a famous art collector and a highly principled actor, an actor that was in uh, deep trouble Uh, during the communist uh, witch hunt uh, and uh, who was put in that unofficial blacklist as an actor. This is unfortunately a case in this particular moment in which you have a very good actor, Tony Robbins, who is famous for his uh, Woody Allen movies and, in my mind, uh, a dead ringer for a younger Ron Perlman. (laughs) Uh, You know, a very good actor with, uh, in my opinion, quite terrible actress. In a scene, it was very often in night gallery that you had uh, someone like Tony Robbins or Edward G. Robinson uh, sharing the screen with uh, essentially day casting, and uh, this is this is what is the case in this in this particular scene. The delivery of uh, the lines of these actors, even as a child, I found them very grating. And and uh, fortunately, mercifully, is a very brief scene. It's very likely that uh, the set was the set that they used to create Mud Street. is very likely it was the back uh, the back street at Universal Studios, which uh, just very recently burned down. Uh, Mud Street is actually one of the oldest uh, streets in Manhattan, and it actually uh, goes back all the way to the 18th century. Uh, and, and by the mid-19th century already, Mud Street is considered by many a very unsavory, dangerous area uh, and becomes the heart of Chinatown uh, and, very, and it shares a border with uh, Little Italy. Many brutal gang fights, uh, a lot of crime and uh, a lot of uh, sort of uh, seedy, dark tenement life. Uh, Life that uh, I think it was portrayed occasionally in um, in in TV by Rod Serling and in comic books sometimes by uh, Will Eisner, uh, and uh, and that uh, has uh, I think been uh, portrayed in film not as often as uh, as it needs to be because it's a, an incredibly interesting period in American history when. Uh, the dissolution of the immigrants, uh, the uh, sort of a, a, a cramming living of uh, people looking for some dignity, people uh, that come from the old world to find a life in America, uh, it hasn't been chronicled enough in, in, uh, in film. Uh, and, and I think this is one instance in which, uh, uh, again, Serling makes a difference between uh, Twilight Zone and Night Gallery. This is a, um, a story that I don't think would have found a place in Twilight Zone, but uh, finds a comfortable place here. Uh, Serling's, uh, Serling's uh, teleplays often take this, uh, this view uh, that it is possible to, to interact with massive archetypes like death uh, or a messiah. In, in a personal way, it's uh, quite a quite a beautiful uh, elegiac way of uh, uh, creating sort of a personal cosmology, a personal mythology, and uh, and one that uh, seems to be uh, a, again uh, unique. He uh, Serling, Serling says uh, often or said often about Night Gallery that he found them um, uh, the episodes forgettable. He used to go to his office um, at uh, at the lot and watch or regard his old reviews for things like patterns or wrecking for a heavyweight and uh, look at it with nostalgia and uh, remarking um, to a reporter, "I don't get reviews like this anymore." You know, there was a time when I when I was all full of promise, so to speak. I believe that Serling, like, like me and like many children full of melancholy, was a prematurely old uh, person. I, I say jokingly that when I was seven years old, I was 70. And I think Serling has uh, that uh, part of his personality too. That's why he is able to empathize with uh, children and, and old people so strongly. I think he was uh, a very old soul even as a young child uh Serling uh, did not think and and uh, the common view on him is that he as a uh, as a writer as a dramatist never fully flourished like uh, some of his other contemporaries did uh, Paddychayevsky for one uh, was able to translate uh, his very successful TV career in a very successful uh, theatrical and um, and uh, filmic career. Uh, Reginald Rose, who also wrote 12 Angry Men, uh, was able to to become more prestigious than Serling ever did. But I think Serling decided to work in a, in a genre that uh, also commanded much less respect than social realism. At the end of the day, all of their teleplays uh, may seem, by today's standards, uh, sentimental, quite sentimental, Chayefsky's, uh Rose, and, and Serling. But uh, I think that Serling is a fabulist. He is, at heart, a, a man that loves to tell uh, tales not so much trying to portray reality as trying to portray uh, emotional little fables. And, uh, and that's the difference also between him and Chayefsky, who, uh, whether he knows it or not, is uh, a fabulist too. Uh, Serling assumes it. And uh, that's why he he's able to uh, do this sort of uh, emotional, spiritual tales like uh, The Messiah on Moth Street. Uh, And I I regard him, yes, uh, perhaps in the eyes of the world, uh, he is not uh, a salient uh, dramatist that will be remembered and honored as much as the others, but in my heart, uh, his his stories, his uh, episodes for Night Gallery, uh, some of them are amongst the most important influences in my creative life and the way I view the world, philosophy- it is a, quite a commanding moment and, and quite a challenging thing for an actor like uh, Robinson to be able to, to fluctuate the way Serling's uh, teleplays demand that he does. They seem to be, they seem to be uh, simple uh, and, uh, and terse but it is only uh, because the delivery of great actors uh, goes hand in hand with great writing. Uh, Serling tends to write beautiful uh, small uh, monologues for for his characters, monologues in which they declare, they declare their view of the world, they declare the way the world has pushed them aside. And uh, they are very theatrical, very theatrical and, uh, and uh, grand but at the same time incredibly difficult to deliver and Robinson is capable of going and fluctuating between uh, sentimental intimacy to grand declaratory uh, monologues in this in this um, in this piece uh, in many ways the writing of Serling reminds me of another writer a fiction writer I love uh, Harlan Ellison uh, who in some of his old stories uh, more or less at the time, has the same regard for what you could call the decent, uh, the decent man, the the uh, middle America decent man of uh, European descent, uh, hardworking, principled, and the way the world essentially uh, pushes him to a corner and squeezes then. Uh, in seeing Night Gallery and the disappointment that it signified for uh, cerning I, I have no choice but to recall my own experience with, with air, uh, with TV. When we were doing a TV series in Mexico called Hora Marcada, uh, many a time we were pushed into horrible schedules, uh, impossible shooting conditions. There was uh, an allergy from the producers of the show and from the tv standards technically in mexico there was an aversion to darkness and uh, we were doing a horror show and uh, perhaps this was true also of night gallery at the time uh, because many of the episodes are overlit Uh, the cinematography is not one of the distinguished aspects of night gallery almost in every case almost in every episode The cinematography is uh, quite flat and in some cases, downright terrible. And uh, as I said, the camera work is too. But you needed to crank these episodes that were gonna live in someone's memory. You you needed to crank them in a couple of days. And having gone through that experience, uh, I remember a fabulous phrase by one of the producers where he said, if it comes out good, that's great. If it comes out bad, nobody will remember. We call it going on air, he said, because that's what we do, we feel air. And it will be forgotten right after it's um, aired. The, the TV episode was of no importance. But, but for us, the ones that we were making the episode was of the highest importance. And Serling was certainly a guy with a lot of ethics, a lot of ethics that uh, I think he felt were subverted when he went from the East Coast to the West Coast also. This uh, intellectual aversion from the East Coast uh, intellectuals to move to a sunny, vanilla environment like they view California. Uh, and, uh, and I think certainly must have felt at some point that he sold out, that he traded uh, his cachet, his feisty uh, profile uh, in the East Coast for a more comfortable life in the West Coast, uh, and uh, sort of a gilded cave. Here we are, I I, I believe this must be the universal back lot. Uh, especially since Mud Street does not have a dead end uh, like that on both sides of the street. But uh, regardless, is a... Is, um, it's rather beautiful to see, the, you know, the, the, what they were trying to do, trying to create this sort of night uh, with incredibly low resources. You know, you can, as, a, as a director, you can see the staging and the way they stage it to the light of the set to have the big cast shadow uh, on the street uh, to give the illusion of night. Uh, this very very faint American Night which uh, you can see all over Night Gallery you can see it on Green Fingers you can see it on Brenda you can see it in many of of the episodes uh, The Phantom Farmhouse uh, this rather crappy low budget uh, uh, pretense of uh, of uh, Night for Day as, the, as it is called Night for Day very very faint uh, cinematographically I think that the Uh, Serling, who was a very tough guy, he was a parachutist and um, a demolition expert, a very, very uh, strong uh, boxer, Uh, he had experienced or he had seen firsthand uh, a much rougher aspect of life and even for TV standards, here and there you get a glimpse of of that um, uh, rough edge and the seediness uh, and Mud Street, this episode, is one of uh, of those instances. You have a child innocently uh, moving uh, amidst very extreme characters and a very extreme situation. And I particularly like this moment in which uh, he confronts uh, a righteous, uh, insane prophet who, who harangues him and tells him, you know, that uh, being a messiah or having any religious experience is uh, about sin and about repentance and about an oppression and uh, and a fear of God. And then comes the entrance of uh, that wonderful actor, Yafet Koto, uh, who who is one of the most remarkable uh, things uh, that ever happened to Night Gallery. You know, this regal uh, presence, this this messiah-like presence that Cotto has is an absolute, absolutely unforgettable thing. Uh, to me, as a child, growing up in Mexico, this is one of those performances that I found incredibly moving as a kid. He has a warmth and a, and a, a, a command and a royalty that is... Uh, incredible and unforgettable. Obviously, you know, it, it is quite famous that Koto was indeed uh, of um, a royal family, a, an African Jewish royal family. Extending back uh, at least to his great-grandfather, uh, they were crown prince or crowns uh, crown kings of Cameroon, and uh, he was himself a, a prince. And uh, uh, quite famously, he, he claims to, to be a descendant, actually, from Queen Victoria, from, from Queen Victoria herself. Uh, so uh, his royal family, his Jewish-African uh, royal family, at some point uh, moved and he was, um, he was raised as an actor in New York City. And at some point he was an understudy for James Earl Jones with whom he shares these uh, booming boys, this uh, incredibly deep, uh, commanding boys, Shakespearean boys, uh, but uh, in, 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 in a strange way, Jones is uh, more relatable. He's more um, earthy. He's much more palpable a presence for me than Jones. Jones is grand in a way that makes him uh, godlike. But uh, Koto, especially for me, memorably, in this episode, or in his role in Alien, where he plays a blue-collar space worker uh, to perfection, he has a humanity, and he has an everyday uh, relatability. He has an incredible um, immediacy that uh, that, uh, paired with his um, theatrical training, and his de- perfect delivery of lines. Uh, give him, give him a, a, an empathy and a warmth that I, I, I find incredibly necessary for this, for this episode. He has a quiet command. An act of God, I think. I came back to look in on you. You were unconscious and barely breathing. Where's Mikey? He out. says very little in this episode but he does one of those things that actors forget to do which is he looks at the other actors and he listens and he feels and uh, he has to have one of the most beautiful most powerful uh, gazes uh, an actor can have and he uh, with very very economical resources he commands the screen he is portraying a very difficult part, uh, especially in the next scene coming up with Tony Robbins. He he is portraying an involuntary involuntary Messiah. Uh, And by the end of the episode, uh, we will be convinced that he is an otherworldly agent, that he is indeed uh, the Messiah, a personal Messiah for Robinson and his grandson. And in the next scene when he's confronted by Tony Robbins, all he has to do is uh, negative work, is holding back. He has to not deny uh, that he is the messiah. He also cannot accept that he is, but it's such a delicate thing, it's such an intelligent thing he does as an actor that uh, is definitely one of those uh, great performances. In, in not only in night gallery but in in the entire run of um, and the entire run of the series but in my mind in in, in uh, every tv movie or every tv episode i've ever seen Then one day you turn around and this uh, episode ends in a beautiful way uh, it ends with a completely unrealistic note of hope and that is perhaps one of the things that uh, people Dislike and they call it sentimental. As I said, it, it is inscribed in that grand Victorian tradition in which uh, Scrooge is converted uh, at the last minute into becoming essentially a wealthy father Christmas for those under him. And uh, this um, transmutation, this uh, redemption, is part of that tradition of the traditional uh, Christmas ghost story. What what I admire about this is, like Tim Riley's bar, and like uh, other uh, episodes in Night Gallery, it's an original teleplay. Night Gallery many times was based on material uh, either originated by great writers, like uh, Lovecraft, Richard Madison, Donald Wandry, uh, Severy Queen, uh, Algernon Blackwood, and so on and so forth, Clark Ashton Smith, uh, but uh, uh, the times when uh, Rod Serling came uh, to bat, not not adapting, not only adapting, but generating his own original uh, teleplays, uh, I think uh, those are instances in which Night Gallery is as good as it can get. Uh, Serling has an uncanny sense of timing and incredible. Uh, his delivery is very precise. What he demands from the delivery is very precise. You saw it. You saw it fail with the bad actress earlier on in the episode, uh, an actress obviously inexperienced. But here you see it succeed with Cotto and Robbins, or you see it succeed in other episodes uh, with other actors. It's a very difficult delivery. Some people talk about the uh, David Mamet sense of rhythm, the David Mamet sense of delivery, which in in a strange way I always have related to. Paddy sense of delivery and Rod Serling's sense of delivery. Uh, but they are very demanding and, and, and uh, incredibly difficult. Uh, the rhythm of the episodes, especially, in my mind, this, Tim Riley's and The Caterpillar, uh, they require uh, precision. These, these were episodes that were meant to last uh, an exact, finite time. Uh, they needed to have time for the commercials, and they needed to have time uh, enough to fill what was uh, the allotted uh, slot for the for the for the TV play to 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 take place in. And many times they were violated. The the hour-long episodes were violated by those silly but perhaps commercially necessary interludes. Uh, written and many times directed by Jack Laird, the the producer, or so-called producer, of uh, Night Gallery. Uh, and and I think that when, once this episode ends, uh, uh, you know, uh, or ended as a kid, when I was a kid and living with my grandmother, uh, my life changed forever. My life uh, uh, became uh, touched by this episode uh, along with Silence No Secrets Snow, and a couple of others of the first season in a way that I haven't been able to forget. This, in this episode, you can see the seeds, obviously many of them biographical, the seeds of my interest in these stories like Kronos. Kronos um, very much drinks from the, from the feeling of this episode. I did not live in a tenement. But uh, as I said, I identified with the kid very much. And uh, one of the things that uh, the episode did and that I do assimilate in Chronos, is the idea of the child as the adult and the old person as the child. You know, you have the, 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 the boy taking care of his grandfather, and not the other way around. The grandfather thinks he is taking care of the kid, and perhaps economically he is, or socially he is but it is the child that brings him soup. It is the child that tends to his uh, medicine. It is the child that goes out into the world to procure him with a messiah. And, uh, you know, that that aspect, that fantasy aspect of it uh, permeated my life. I did not care for my grandmother. I did not cook for my grandmother, but I, I could relate to it so strongly that I made the girl in Kronos be a little bit like uh, like uh, the boy in this episode. Uh, and uh, I wanted her to tend to the old man. I wanted her to become the adult, to be the most adult character in that movie and the old man to be the most uh, irresponsible or uh, sort of a, a invalid character in the movie, uh, one that has to be taken care of. And here we come to the, to the closure, the, the fairy tale closure, and I, I love the way, the simple way, that Serling deals with the twist, with the magical twist in the, in the fable. Everybody just forgets. They forget about what happened in that, in that, uh, in that room, what happened in that uh, small room in the tenement. But he does it without any tricks. Uh, Don Taylor... This is where uh, the matter-of-fact staging of Don Taylor incredibly efficient uh, matter-of-fact uh, staging of Don Taylor allows for the magic to happen in a non-showy way. You know, the everybody has been dealt with in such solid terms in such uh, simple terms that when the magic is announced and it's enunciated and people say I don't remember what happened. I don't recall. I think uh, I was on the street and so on and so forth. Uh, It is taken for granted, you know, and and this is a big lesson that I have lived with again and again in my life and as a director. I try to stage the fantastic uh, as if it was real. I don't try to create incredibly fancy moves for a fantastic situation with my camera work. I try to stage it uh, contempla- con- in a cont- contemplative way, but uh, and the camera roams and moves and searches and, and is in constant uh, um, evolution, but I try to do it in a way that doesn't break the rules of reality. I, I can do it in a big fight scene or I can do it in a flamboyant moment, but other than that, I try to, to have the camera tell the story of the most fantastic things in, in a way that does not hyper uh, hyperestilize things, and uh, Don Taylor understands this. And both in this and in Tim Riley's bar, uh, they have this in common. Magic occurs in a matter-of-fact way, in a completely mundane way, you know. And I think and I think that uh, that's a lesson that we should not forget uh, here. Uh, and at the ending, when Japit Koto is playing the, the mailman, uh, there is something very touching. Uh, there's a great moment at the end when him and Tony Robbins look at each other in the street, uh, and, and Tony Robbins does this big double-take, giant question mark above his head, a uh, moment where he asks himself, did I or didn't I? Just see what I saw, saw what I saw, and is he or isn't he? And uh, and is is done rather simply and rather beautifully, and Koto uh, uh, again takes great advantage of his regal presence to to not wink, uh, not quite wink at the audience, not quite uh, do it in an overt way, but he has a very faint half smile uh, that kind of acknowledges uh, he knows who he is and he knows what he did and the magic is there and 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 that again makes this episode one of those rare uh, episodes of night gallery that could be viewed with uh, children i viewed this episode very recently with my wife and my older daughter and uh, they both still found it very touching they still found it to be uh, a beautiful fable and uh, and a fable about the innate goodness of humanity perhaps implausible by today's standards and uh, perhaps uh, too sentimental by by our times, or by the standards of our times when uh, skepticism and cynicism are easy replacement for intelligence and uh, they are a simulacra of intelligence. But uh, uh, this holds forever its place in my heart as one of those uh, uh, most most uh, preferred, my favorite episodes of Night Gallery, and I hope it can become in time one of yours. This next episode this is the Painted Mirror. is uh, not not quite a remarkable episode. This is uh, one of the aspects of Night Gallery. There was very rarely. Uh, one full episode that was composed of two or three stories that were all strong. There was always sort of a B, B episode in the in, in each one of the airings of Night Gallery, and this is definitely one of those. I think that the the, the directing is quite good, is is very efficient. You know, is by Gene R. Kearney, who was also uh, one of the key writers in the episodes I love in Night Gallery and who wrote uh, the famous Make Me Laugh episode uh, that Steven Spielberg directed, and that is one of my favorite episodes, uh, again, of all times in Night Gallery. And uh, he wrote and directed the adaptation of the f- uh, amazing episode Silence No, Secrets No. And um, I believe he he participated in, in over a dozen more episodes, and he can be seen, actually. He does a cameo, a small cameo in Make Me Laugh. He plays one of the bartenders in that episode. I think that, uh, with all due respect, this episode is uh, quite damaged by the very overt, very cartoony uh, portrayal of the character that Zaza Gabor uh, plays. And uh, it's not an exactly uh, too subtle uh, episode about the confrontation of the the quote-unquote old ways uh, with the quote-unquote new ways. Uh, Rod Serling and uh, and uh, Night Gallery, uh, you know, often have these clashes against the modern world and the old world. Uh, at, at their best, at their best, they are. Uh, touching meditations about uh, not keeping up with the times, and at their worst, they become sort of a, quite, uh, quite more sketchy and cartoony uh, about uh, the old world and the new world, and and they portray the new world as a crass, uh, almost ridiculous uh, world of uh, pretense and uh, garishness. As is the case in this episode with Zaza Gabor. nevertheless, you can see a certain influence between um, the look uh, of this uh, the, the, this man, uh, the the shop owner or the ex-shop owner, and uh, and the character of um, Jesus Gris and Kronos. Once again, uh, Night Gallery did leave a uh, mark on me, but I, I think that. Uh, uh, other than that is uh, an efficiently mounted episode is not very remarkable this is uh, uh, you know the the, the, the absolute uh, uh, low 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 budget of uh, the night gallery productions uh, is so damaging sometimes uh, when you see uh, the prop department uh, props the uh, same furniture recycled from one set to the other, terribly, uh, terribly mundane, like almost uh, cardboard-like sets. Uh, and, and, you know, this is, this is uh, one of those poorly mounted uh, productions, one that demanded a far more ambitious um, production for what lies on the other side of the mirror. The, the short story in which it, it's based, is uh, it was written by Donald Wondry, uh, who uh, was um, a very tight uh, part of the circle, the H.P. Lovecraft circle of writers Not to give you... from uh, Weird Tales. You know, and, and he was a very, very prolific, for a very short period, he was a very prolific writer um, in, the, uh, in the 1930s. He had a prodigious output uh, during about uh, a decade, and then he, uh, he petered down to a very uh, meager output as a writer from then on. Uh, he died uh, in, where he was born, in St. Paul, Minnesota, um, at the end of the 20th century, and uh, in the 1980s. Uh, and he was uh, forever identified with the Lovecraft Circle and with the uh, editorial imprint he created with um, August Derleth. Um, they founded um, a fantastic publishing house called Arkham House, which was founded uh, to give to, uh, a way to good good editions, good um, good editions uh, uh, of H. P. Lovecraft's work. They uh, it's a very controversial role that Derleth and Arkham House played with uh, Lovecraft's Lovecraft's output. Because for many, they remain the supreme um, collectible editions of Lovecraft's work, but uh, to some, to many, they were also uh, heavily edited and uh, meddled with by uh, August Derleth. Uh, I uh, always considered them uh, to be really prime examples of uh, sort of the holy grail of the collectible books when I was growing up. And Wanderers' uh, stories, uh, I, I am not uh, a massive fan of his writing. I, I like some of them. I like them very much. I actually think that uh, his short story has much more magic than the episode allows for with, uh, with the poor production values. But then again, this cannot be faulted uh, to either the director Kearney, or to, or to the writer of the short story, or or, or the teleplay that was adapted by Kearney, um, I think that it is all to do with the substandard uh, production of the of the episode. It's is perfectly and and um, you know is is directed in a perfectly acceptable manner, very academic. Uh, but it is in a moment when you see what lies on the other side of the mirror, which is up to now, quite frankly, staged very ingeniously and intriguingly. And, uh, and we are captive of the episode until we go and see the painted backdrop and the, and the fake foliage from the prop department uh, taking over. And the, the, the monster, you know, uh, the, the bear, so to speak, uh, in this episode, the monster is uh, uh, you know, a rather crude use of um, stock footage of giant lizards with uh, ridiculous prosthetics uh, glued to their bodies or uh, the recycled uh, hands of a creature from the Black Lagoon, uh, the suit of the uh, Gilman from Creature of the, from the Black Lagoon a suit that would be recycled again by John Chambers in Night Gallery to create uh, the legs and the arms of the monster in uh, the fabulous uh, episode Pigment's Model, which is one of those episodes that in spite of being uh, poorly staged, poorly directed, uh, remains memorable because of the intensity, I think, of the Lovecraft story. Uh, when when uh, uh, when we finally revealed um, the other side, uh, one of the curious things is that uh, it is uh, done in, in very vivid colors. And this, even if it is done in such a, uh, under such poor production, uh, I think that it, it is important to, that the other side of a mirror, the other side of the mirror, that reality is far more vibrant and far more colorful than, than quote-unquote real life. You know, the the, the real life uh, side uh, has very few vivid colors, most of them associated with uh, Zaza Gabor's uh, clothing or uh, her most uh, close props, but the rest is rather uh, faded colors. And uh, the other side of the mirror, on the other hand, has this almost Vincent van Gogh <laughs> color palette. Sadly, it's also not very three-dimensional. It looks, it has a painterly aspect to it. Uh, that didn't detract uh, much from from it feeling alien and, and interesting when I was a kid, but now that I am uh, older and perhaps uh, cursed with a more adult point of view, it is almost uh, impossible to to subtract uh, the high school play qualities of those sets, you know. Uh, I, I think that uh, that uh, I would take a few seconds to recount my favorite episodes, my favorite episodes of the Night Gallery run, the three seasons. I love uh, uh, Sins of the Fathers. I love Soul Survivor. I love The Doll, my favorite. The Dead Man, big surprise. The Boy Who Predicted Earthquakes, Green Fingers, Certain Shadows on the Wall, Pickman's Model, uh, Cool Air, Brenda, a Little Black Bag, which is another great Serling episode, Make Me Laugh, They're Tearing Tim Riley's Bar, uh, Dr. Stringfellow's Rejuvenator, The Dark Boy, Miracle at Camaphael, A Feast of Blood, I'll Never Leave You, Ever, There Aren't Any More McBains, Return of the Sorcerer, Fright Night, and The Ghost of Sorworth Place. These are some of my favorites. And uh, in the second season alone, I would have loved to actually take the time and chat away in about uh, five or six of them. But uh, we were limited to uh, me only doing commentary for three of them. Um, I don't know if it's for uh, information space or for budget reasons. Uh, perhaps Night Gallery will always be cursed uh, by being treated uh, tightly on the budget department. It was that way in the production of the episodes and it seemed to be uh, that way in the way uh, the DVDs and the video story of the of the show have been progressing. Uh, I think that uh, here... Uh, what I love is also the fact that uh, the people we identify with the most, and this was uh, this is a, a very nice pulpy, pulpit trick, uh, in 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 the crime stories in pulp novels and in the horror stories in pulp novels, uh, very quote-unquote decent people, very meek people, uh, often committed uh, crimes. And uh, this is true of this episode. There is a gleeful, uh, a gleeful perversity with the fact that uh, we are asked to to endorse the murder of Zaza for being obnoxious and uh, for being um, heartless. And uh, here you have these two meek old people endorsing. I mean, uh, sorry, having us endorse fully. The fact that they are going to murder her by leaving her with these giant lizards with prosthetics on their heads, and uh, and the rubber hands uh, of the monster from uh, the guildman from Creature from the Black Lagoon, who makes his uh, appearance right now in this shot. There he is. When I when I say the there, obviously I'm referring to the I'm using the term by which uh, another great series, Outer Limits, referred to. Uh, to their monsters. They, they call their monsters the bear. And uh, most people think or, or uh, remember The Outer Limits as uh, not only great writing, but uh, a great production value in the creation of their monsters. In fact, uh, the, the, my attachment to the genre comes from a, a, an Outer Limits episode called The Mutant uh, with uh, uh, Warren Oates which scared me so much that I became attached to monsters. And this is the ending of this episode and the ending of my commentary for it. Uh, See you on the next one. Thank you very much.